Hi, I'm Fred Burton, and I'm very excited to host this special episode as part of our Protective Intelligence Honors Program, a program we developed at the Center for Protective Intelligence to celebrate the top pioneers and thought leaders in physical security. We are recognizing professionals who have driven new shifts and novel practices and are contributing to influencing and advancing the physical security and protection industry. Today, I'm speaking with two of our pioneers, Dr. Reed Malloy and Dr. Stephen White, co-founders of the Waiver 21, an evidence-based structured professional judgment guide for assessing workplace and campus violence risk. We'll discuss their views on leadership, changes in the physical security space, and more. For their complete bios, please visit our website at protectiveintelligencehonors.com. Reed and Steve, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks, Fred. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, it's, it's rare that I get a chance to talk to two individuals that have been so instrumental in this space. So uh, I'm really excited to get started here. Steve, let's begin with you. How did you get into the threat assessment space, assisting security professionals with workplace safety issues? Well, Fred, uh, frankly, I kind of got dragged into it. I, uh, I had finished my uh, postdoctoral internship at UC San Francisco, and I was consulting in organizational context. I'd worked in clinical settings, but I was very interested in the issues that organizations and workplaces face. And I I started my company, Work Trauma Services, providing trauma reduction after serious crises, uh, like industrial accidents and serious bank robberies and, and workplace uh, suicides and homicides. Uh, and we'd go in and debrief people. At, in the 80s, what began to happen were these workplace shootings. And they and they weren't just a few, they would happen again. And law enforcement or security people would call me and a, another colleague I worked with who was engaged in hostage negotiation. And they would just say, look, we've got somebody who is very angry and has firearms, maybe a little paranoid, and um, we're concerned about what he might do. And uh, we don't want anything to happen like what happened at, say, a, a recent post office shooting. The term going postal had come about. And um, we went in and we, we assessed it as best we could, but frankly, we were learning on the job, as were other groups uh, in the country, because there was no real knowledge base about these, these uh, workplace-based uh, incidents. And we were kind of uh, figuring it out, and we learned a lot. and. Uh, by 1990, I was I had shifted into doing threat assessment, working with organizations. Uh, that was became my full time practice. And then in the 90s, the knowledge really began to and the scholarship really began to develop as we learned more and more about these situations. And Reed was one of the fellows who was uh, an early scholar in this area and has done some great research with. Uh, targeted intended violence but that's kind of how i got started it was it was sort of accidental in a way and a, frankly a, a bit nerve-wracking in the beginning reed how about you uh thanks fred um 
I came to the I came to these tasks uh, kind of a in a very different uh, route. Uh, my work initially was in uh, criminal forensics, and I worked in uh, detention facilities, jails, prisons, uh, forensic hospitals. So I began uh, early on back in the 80s, uh, actually evaluating individuals uh, who had carried out just some some of the most horrendous criminal uh, violent acts that we've seen of uh, serial murders, mass murders, uh, sexual homicides, very um, unusual and atypical killings. And uh, that uh, sort of unbeknownst to me, I was, uh, in a sense, uh, doing a deep dive into the psychopathology of these individuals by being able to actually spend time with them and evaluate them for the courts. And then I did a lot of testifying in court. And then, as Steve mentioned, uh, things began to develop uh, quite in intensely, particularly in the area of stalking, which turned out to be the one of the first acts of targeted violence that began to get a lot of scholarship and research attention in the uh, late 80s and in the 90s, particularly when it became uh, a, a crime uh, throughout the country. And uh, that's also when we began to see more uh, research in the domain of public figure attacks and also our work, uh, early work back in the 90s in terms of mass murder. And of course, all of those fall under the umbrella of of targeted violence. And uh, that then moved me to be very interested in how we could uh, work to prevent and manage these acts. Uh, I became very involved uh, in the uh, in ATAP, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals in the early 90s. And that's been an organization that Steve and I both have been very committed to over the past uh, uh, three decades. And uh, that then led to me doing more and more consulting work. Uh, a heavy influence for me, too, is I've been a um, consultant to the uh, behavioral analysis units at the FBI for the past two decades. And a lot of the focus there is on uh, targeted attacks, whether it's, uh, you know, counterterrorism or criminal violence. And that's also been uh, very influential because I've been able to work uh, cases that have been very important to the understanding of these events, uh, both nationally as well as internationally. That's an amazing story. Now, I know when I transitioned the protective intelligence program from the government to the private sector in late 98, did this kind of work develop in the government space and then transition into the private sector, Reed? Yeah, that's a, it'll be interesting for me to hear Steve's perspective on this too. I think the leads in this field, particularly, you know, in specifically talking about threat assessment and threat management, uh, did come from the government side. And I think back to the early work and research that was done at the Secret Service, uh, also the early work done at the FBI, as well as the U.S. Capitol Police. And they were uh, very much in the forefront of developing uh, threat assessment and threat management uh, as we moved our way into the 90s. Um, and so I would say that, yeah, that the really the public sector uh, and primarily uh, federal government agencies led the way in this in this area, with the exception of the threat management unit with the LAPD, which again was public sector government work, but it was a just a very large metropolitan police force. And the TMU, 
the threat management unit there also uh, began in earnest uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Steve, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, I certainly agree with with Reed. A uh, number of us uh, in the early days of ATAP were, you know, developing the knowledge base and recognizing the warning signs, the warning behaviors, uh, and the do's and don'ts when you're uh, dealing with these situations in organizational settings. But the work of the Secret Service, they really brought this all together with some very good scholarship and synthesis in the 90s. Uh, and it, it all kind of made sense. And I remember thinking, boy, this is a turning point because uh, they, they've really uh, put it all together. And then it was extrapolated uh, beyond uh, attacks on public figures and attempted assassinations or actual assassinations. It was extrapolated to other settings like workplaces and campuses because it was the same uh, process as dynamic process as somebody uh, with a motive to harm others uh, for uh, seeking notoriety or revenge and you know other motives like that and uh, we were able to uh, make more sense of things and frankly develop a common knowledge base and a common language in talking about this and identify the risk factors and protective factors that were relevant to understand whatever kind of context you're, you're working in. And there's differences between public figures, workplace violence, domestic violence, but, but, but there's a, there are fundamentals about uh, who has a reason to kill other people uh, and how do we identify that as, as early as possible so that we can uh, intervene, of course? Steve, the Waiver 21 story, we'd love to hear how you two came together to establish Waiver 21 in 2007. Well, yes. You know, as, as, uh, as happens, uh, uh, when professionals meet each other at, at these conferences and read each other's papers and all. And uh, Reed mentioned ATAP, which is, it's really a very important organization. And uh, I met Reed through, uh, through ATAP and actually asked him to consult on uh, some early cases of mine before I really knew him and before he had become a, a great collegial friend. Um, and, uh, but back to your question, you know, there's, there's a need to organize things. And you mentioned the Structured Professional Judgment Guide uh, technology. And tools were being developed <clears throat> to assess targeted violence risk in these different settings. But there wasn't one for the workplace. And having done many, many cases and worked with these multidisciplinary teams, human resources, security, attorneys, uh, law enforcement, um, I recognized that we needed a tool that was had these general risk factors incorporated, but also specific to workplace situations. And, and the, an SPJ is a, a list of these factors that are, that are relevant 
and they're structured and they're a guide. They're a map for how to proceed with, with assessments, which are largely dynamic. These are ongoing situations. The, the individual in crisis who may pose a threat is moving in time. The, the cases are hot. Uh, and you're, you need a, a structured way to identify the signs and then address the dynamic factors like uh, access to weapons or uh, misuse of substances or anger or some ongoing <clears throat> psychotic delusion, for instance, and trying to treat that uh, as best you can. And so um, I needed somebody, I wanted somebody to help me with it. And I approached Reed, I said, and who has this great uh, uh, research uh, expertise. And I said, hey, Reed, I want to develop a tool. Would you like to help me for the workplace? And, and uh, he was very eager to do that. The idea is that uh, having worked with organizational teams, you need a common language, uh, a common knowledge base. You're not going to train everybody to be a, a mental health professional who specializes in this but there are basics about the behaviors and the case dynamics that everybody involved needs to understand, whether you're in security or human resources or whatever, uh, and follow the map and uh, use the tool, which keeps you in the right lane. Uh, and also, uh, the, obviously, the factors are, are based, they're evidence-based. We, we know there is a statistical relationship between paranoia and violence risk or a violent delusion and violence risk, a history of violence and future violence risk, et cetera. Um, but the tool is also uh, meant to be very practical so that when someone has a case that involves certain more relevant items, they can look in the manual and say, what what does the waiver have to say about the relationship of this phenomenon to risk? And I can go there and look at it and, uh, and start to make sense of things and how the items relate to each other and affect each other. Recent losses, stresses, uh, rejections, being fired. One of our items is extreme job attachment. It's not just that the guy's going to lose his job for uh, threatening behavior, but what would that mean to him? How much of an insult would that be? How much would he feel humiliated? And so that's that's an example of how something is woven into the waiver so that when you're contemplating terminating somebody, you think about the impact on them. And, and people intuitively know this uh, who work in organizations, but the idea is to formalize it. It's right there. Have we checked all these items? Reed, anything to add? Boy, I don't know, Fred. That was pretty, pretty thorough and uh, well done, Steve. You know, the only thing I'd add, Fred, is I've, you know, I've had one of the ways I've been blessed in my life is to, on occasion, uh, meet somebody like Steve, uh, who is one, a very good and kind person, and secondly, is uh, intellectually curious and creative. And, uh, with that kind of opportunity to collaborate, we've been able to generate uh, a tool that had never been done before. 
uh, in the way that we did it, and that is to provide a uh, reasonably understandable and a thoughtful instrument for people to use in the assessment of uh, risk uh, in the workplace. And I think the contribution is solid. Uh, the measure is always uh, uh, how widely it's used, and, and it, that's been an important metric for us uh, as we move forward to see that uh, it has been widely accepted. And um, <clears throat> I just hope it will uh, you know, continue to uh, provide a uh, important uh, gateway for people to uh, assess risk in the years to come. I want to put both of you on the spot now. Reed, what's the most interesting case that you've worked? <laughs> Fred, that's easy. Uh, it was the Oklahoma City bombing cases. Uh, I was retained by the uh, Attorney General. Uh, it, is, uh, it was by far the most important case of my career. And uh, I worked uh, uh, as the, front, the forensic psychologist for the uh, prosecution in the Timothy McVeigh trial, and then subsequently in the in the Terry Nichols trial. And um, it was uh, it was an honor. It was an absolute honor to do that case. I saw some of the most remarkable skills uh, in terms of cross-examination that I've ever witnessed uh, by the federal uh, prosecutors that were handpicked to do that case. And also uh, developed a uh, remarkable admiration for uh, uh, Judge Mache, who presided over those uh, two two cases. But just a a really brief uh, uh, comment on that, Uh, those cases, the tr- those trials started right after O.J. Simpson trial, which, of course, was a debacle uh, where we had a judge who, Judge Ito, who primarily wanted to be on television and to be interviewed. And we had an outcome that really polarized and split the country. And my one regret in the trials of McVeigh and Nichols is that in federal court, of course, there are no television cameras. And the American public could not witness one of the finest displays of criminal litigation that has been done in the country in the latter half, I think, of the 20th century. And it was just a, a tour de force um, on the part of the folks that, that uh, brought that case to trial, uh, both the defense and the prosecution, of the fact of the way in which the witnesses and the victims uh, in that case were handled. And it was a a case in which I was able to, I was able to touch history and uh, that became very, very important to me. Yeah, that's an amazing story. How about you, Steve? What's the most interesting case that you've worked on? Boy, Fred, I'm thinking about this. It's really, (laughs) it's, it's kind of tough to pick, to pick one out, I guess. what one one that comes to mind real early and and I think the point of this is if you're going to do threat assessment in these contexts, you got to learn how to deal with the hot ones with the really tough ones uh This is not for the faint of heart there's many cases that are they turn out to be most of them turn out to be false positives. People have some of the signs and they're they come to attention they may even make threats, of course, but they don't hurt people. But you have to do the work to 
to be confident about that and uh, uh, and communicate that in a way that uh, is reassuring to people. It's humbling work, frankly. Um, a case I remember early on was uh, a fellow uh, who was actually in the security field and uh, was very sensitive to being rejected. He was a contract security guy and, and, uh, uh, he was, um, uh, he was terminated for saying some things. And, uh, and I interviewed him. We tried to interview most people and, uh, uh, and, uh, he wound up, uh, making a threat to me. It's, which is very rare. I've, I've only been threatened a few times, but those are ones you learn from. And uh, uh, it made me realize that uh, it, it all worked out fine. Law enforcement got his firearms and uh, it, it worked out fine and he, he calmed down. But um, uh, it, it makes you realize that you've got to be sensitive to the capacity that people have to redirect themselves and de-escalate themselves versus those who uh, those who will do this because it's an assertion for them, it's a statement, uh, it's it's replacing pride, replacing humiliation with pride, which is hard to get your head around because these are suicidal missions. You know, you the people who do this, they they either intend to die. Uh, and they may provoke a suicide by a cop, or they or they know they're going to be in prison. Th these are not people who uh, generally commit homicides and then try to get away. A lot of them just they that's part of the of the drama is the last act is suicide, uh, and some just put the gun down on the table and say, "I'm I'm finished. You can come and get me now." But what I learned from this case this is I understood how this fellow was really in that back and forth uh, quandary. And, and that's what we look for is who is still amenable to, will they bring themselves down or can we bring them down? Or are we just going to be playing hardball because they're going to go all the way? So it's just, I remember that one because it really struck me. And makes it a very interesting uh, way to work because of all the different nuances and ways that you can respond to a situation, not just defaulting to restraining orders or, or security measures per se. Uh, you can learn a lot by listening to people and getting all the collateral data that, that helps, helps you fill in. So that's kind of a long-winded way of answering answering your questions, but um, uh, that's that was a case that really uh, I, I remember well because he did make a threat to me, and that it went away. And um, uh, you don't forget those things. <laughs> well, that's actually a great dovetail into my next question, Steve. What are some key missteps that employers need to know to avoid? Well, I uh, appreciate you asking me that, that question because here's the thing, and 
Sadly, the United States is the world leader in, in mass murders. But the other side of that is we've learned a lot. And I think uh, a very common mistake, and this is with organizations who are not used to this, who haven't developed the internal knowledge base and multidisciplinary teams to deal with these recurrent uh, incidents that they have to address. The larger the company, the more likely they're going to have a uh, a very organized process and training and awareness uh, and creating a see something, say something culture. But a very common mistake that still happens is the hasty termination. He made a threat. Uh, we have an obligation to protect the workplace, so we need to get rid of him. Get him out of here. Uh, he's, he's, he's misbehaved. He's threatened people. People are scared. Obviously, we need to get him out of here. We call law enforcement. We may get protective orders. And, and uh, we keep security around for a few days or a few weeks. And then we hope for the best. And, and that's a constant message is, uh, is the, the superficial threat assessment. You know, don't get enough information about somebody, including talking to him. And, and you have to have this, the skill set to interview people like this. But, but um, that, that's a mistake. We're always telling people, slow down. There are crises, uh, emergencies. Get the police here right away, et cetera, lockdown. But there's very often time to find out more, talk to a supervisor, talk to witnesses, do the background check, get a sense of the whole person. Uh, it's developing that information before you say goodbye to somebody. Because once he's gone, you don't have access to him. Law enforcement does, but, but we don't uh, in general. So that, that's a, still, this still happens uh, all too frequently, the hasty termination. Reed, what would you add? Yeah, what I'd add to that is that the private sector and corporations just dragging their feet and not developing a uh, threat assessment management team that is interdisciplinary and that is in place uh, in their in their corporation. You know, the old saying is, you don't when you need a friend, you don't make a friend. You know that that the making a friend has to precede needing a friend. And I've seen so many times when. Uh, corporations uh, at the last minute are trying to assemble several different people to address the crises. And if you um, uh, structure an interdisciplinary threat assessment team in the corporation, uh, the teaching and training are done with that team. Uh, it matures, it develops uh, a sense of rapport with each member of the team, then you're going to be much more able to handle the crisis as it arises. Uh, the other thing that uh, I want to underscore from what Steve said is that the typically our default position uh, is at some point in the investigation to interview the individual, to sit down with them and learn their perspective. That becomes, in my opinion, the default position that we do do interviews of the person of concern. Now, as Steve mentioned, there may be times when that's not the appropriate thing to do, but you always begin from the position of we will do an interview and then you may uh, marshal uh, reasons why not to, but you don't begin from the position, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's hide out, 
Let's not have any contact with this person. Let's pull away. Let's uh, let's take their access card. Let's eliminate their uh, access uh, through the computer because then you're completely in the dark and you have no source of intelligence on how that person is feeling and what they're thinking. You have to maintain that channel that provides both intelligence and then also will oftentimes have therapeutic benefit for the individual that is of concern in your organization. I appreciate you both sharing those comments uh, for our listeners. That's going to be extraordinarily helpful. I'd like to close out uh, our conversation today by asking you each uh, this question. I'll start with you, Steve. Where do you see the threat assessment industry going over the next, let's say, one to three years? Well, I think one of the big issues now is because of the the current social, cultural, political landscape of uh, increasing volumes of threatening rhetoric, uh, threats to public figures, threats to officials uh, that comes out of our uh, increasing polarization and uh, the increase in extremist viewpoints and and violent extremism where an in-group, uh, out of their belief system, whatever it is, sees violence as the way that they, as, as the answer to getting rid of the out-group and uh, and that that kind of thinking has become much wider and broader uh, in volume. And the uh, in threat assessment, we have to be better prepared to do triage and screening of the high volume of, of threatening communications and threatening behaviors uh, not overreacting to them, but being able to sort them out. This, this, we've always had a haystack issue, looking for the hot needle in a haystack, but that haystack has greatly expanded. Reed? Yeah, Fred, let me take it up from uh, two perspectives. One is a macro level, which is uh, kind of underscoring some of the things that Steve has said. Um, I've I've just finished a, a, a book that I want to recommend. Uh, it's called The Coming Civil War, and uh, that's a very, very dark title, but it's a macro look at uh, some of the very, very, for me, uh, distressing uh, large patterns we're seeing uh, that I think threaten the pillars of our democracy. And I think we need to learn as much about that uh, as we can. Uh, a second book is How Civil Wars Happen. How Civil Wars Begin, which I also want to recommend. It's written by a political scientist that's also a really excellent. So we have that macro look at what's happening in our society and our individual role in not buying into heavily polarized thinking where we identify people that are politically different or have different views from us as the enemy. We are all Americans. We are all American citizens. Now, at a micro level, um, we're going to see, in terms of threat assessment, threat management, as we go forward, we're going to see uh, uh, larger efforts in the area of machine learning, artificial intelligence as a way 
uh, to filter, develop algorithms that are reading these tremendously large data sets of threatening communication, uh, looking for uh, specific indicators of uh, actual threats and serious threats. And then those indicators uh, would then move to uh, human investigation, human intelligence gathering, uh, basically the old gumshoe work that we all know about, where we're uh, then going forward with those particular cases of concern. But the screening has to be done. The data sets are just too large now for that to be done individually. That has to be done through uh, the kinds of platforms that Ontic is developing, the kinds of work that Steve and I are doing to be able to get the, the cases of great greatest concern uh, for uh, uh, specific individual uh, investigative work. And then the last comment is for everybody to recognize, and this is this is this is something that, uh, as an old guy, uh, I'm able to say with um, uh, with all humility, is that we have to recognize that the younger generations and the folks coming up are living in two worlds simultaneously. They're living online and they're living on the ground, and what that means is that when a case comes to you initially and the data is the concerning data is online one of the first questions i ask is what's this guy doing on the ground and if the case comes to me first on the ground with behaviors of concern i want to know what is this guy doing online so we have to remember that this online on the ground domains are happening 24/7 for people, that's where they're living, and that's where we need to focus our investigations. Dr. Reed Malloy and Dr. Stephen White, thank you so much for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Rye and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.